Welcome to an episode of Cine Nation. My name is Brandon Sparks. And here on Cine Nation, we discuss film genres and the tropes and stories within them. And this week, we have someone who's returning from a long time ago, it feels like. Because <laughs> I don't have Thomas. A long time but, ago. I don't have Thomas, but I have Anna Catley, the Anna Catley, coming <laughs> coming to us from, from Canada, Toronto, correct? Toronto. Uh, uh, yeah, you got, it, you got it right. There we go. <laughs> coming from Toronto. Anna was, uh, I mean, a long time ago in our early incarnation of the Sin Nation podcast was I guess our Canadian correspondent we would say um <laughs> who came on for for certain episodes and then she came on for our 100th, 100th episode right right before COVID happened I think is what it was it was right when everything went crazy trust me it's hmm. it's correct it's correct <laughs> I don't re- I'm I don't recall being on a, an anniversary podcast. You were. <laughs> oh my the gosh. The 100th, 100th episode. That was what did, we talk, what did we talk about? We talked about brief encounter is what we talked about and how we how you and I met at Can is what it was. You, you, oh yeah. COVID COVID was rough it sounds like for you, Anne. Oh my god. Yeah, I have no recollection of the past 2 years, I'll be honest, yeah. but I'm yeah. I'm going to go back and listen to that episode. Okay. Um, Maybe I was in a fugue state. It's entirely possible. It's possible. But yeah, we you came back on as like a big like reuniting of everyone and I interviewed each of you. Now yeah, now 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 this is a pitch for people to go back and listen to the 100th episode to see what the show used to be like. Um before listen everything. To all my old episodes. Yeah, well you yeah, you did a lot of the bad movie ones that Hunter yeah. and Thomas would do. So like wrote was it Roadhouse? Roadhouse. I don't know if people can listen to those anymore. I think those are like somewhere oh. uh, they're not on Apple but, anymore. Yeah, we did Roadhouse. We did I Know Who Killed Me. We did Anaconda. You did Anaconda, yes. Which other? We must have done other ones than that. Well, there's a lot of like start and stops with some of those. Yeah, we thing. did like I was on a Star Wars episode, I think. And I oh think yeah, I was you on did a Wonder Woman episode. Yeah, that was that was the last one before the show com- completely changed. That was the before right. the like like two year gap, and then we came back and then did genres, and now we're in a whole new whole new thing, and that leads us to this mm-hmm. month. We've been talking about Neon Noir, and actually, I, I think we literally did this epi- this series because I wanted to bring you on, because you asked me when you visit LA, if you ever do a Neon Noir series, I want to be on, and so I upheld my promise, uh, so here we are. Oh my gosh, I didn't realize I inspired this month. I've been waiting, yeah, I've been trying to get you back on, this was the perfect time to bring you back, and so I'll ask you, why... Why do you enjoy neon noir or what is neon noir to you? What is neon noir? It's <laughs> I love neon noir. I think it's kind of a little ridiculous. It's yeah. um I I like things that are kind of flashy and a little like ostentatious mm-hmm. and a little over dramatic yeah. but hyper stylized. Yeah. Um so I I think I, I I think I started getting really into neon noir because of I went through a very intense Brian De Palma phase, um, and I was thinking like, wow, like everything he does in like the early seventies and eighties is amazing. Like it's all got this like neon drenched like kind of crime, kind of sexy erotic vibe, and mm-hmm. that led me to um, making that neon noir list that mm-hmm. I have on Letterbox to discover other neon noir films. And I don't know, it's just it's just become one of my favorite kinds of movies to watch. Mm-hmm. I just think they're kind of they're just uh, they're just like really fun. I think mm-hmm. um, they're they're not as like a, a, a dense as like some noirs can be. You know, it's kind of like, yeah. hey, let's stop being like so morally righteous with noirs and let's like kind of do something a little like 
crazy and like let's like yeah. throw like the morality book out the window and like let's just like do a really like cool like uh moody like erotic thriller yeah yeah or or, or i mean you still have the crime aspect i mean we talked about uh a few months back and i think you mentioned it too but but michael mann's thief it's like that's kind of like quintessential neon noir of like yeah comes in and i and i think when talking about today's movie to live and die in la there are a lot of correlations to like man's work and this movie like this this film feels like a movie that michael mann wishes he made i was just thinking that today because i i was kind of like re re-watching like bits of to live and mm-hmm. die in la just to be like because i watched it last night and i was like oh let me just watch like a couple more scenes and like remember and i was like oh you know what Michael Mann like definitely watched To Live and Die in L.A. and then was like, I got to make Manhunter because he made it like, what, 86? Yeah. Manhunter in 86. The, and ne- then this the was next 85. Year. Yeah. Yeah. So he definitely saw William Peterson in this role and was like, I got to get him in my next movie. And he did Manhunter just for that. He was like inspired by To Live and Die in L.A. for sure. Well, I'll say this. Peterson, he had worked with Peterson once before. Peterson is a well, isn't a blinking. Don't missing- ruin this fantasy for me. <laughs> Okay, what are you doing? I'll, I'll, I'll wait to say that for later. I'll say that for later. <laughs> but but no, it's, it feels like but just like because man, we talked about this in our episode back I think in uh, April May I think. Man's characters are always like or man himself and the characters that he shows in his films are obsessed with the process. And like mm-hmm. Willem Dafoe is an example of like you're seeing everything that he does as a counterfeiter in mm-hmm. that movie uh, in this yeah. movie. Um, but yeah, so what we've discussed, kind of going off all that, what we discussed this month with Neon Noir, we talked about kind of the 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 stylized version of noir, taking the black mm-hmm. and white and adding neon, adding more color to it. Um, mm-hmm. A lot of these neon noirs now in a, in, a, in a more modern sense, they didn't have to worry about the Hayes Code and the production code that kind of prompt, that, that prevented violence, especially uh, hyper violence in the 40s and 50s. But with neon noir, you have a more violent aspect to these to these films, and usually a big climax of some kind, where there's this final violent climax that's going to happen in the film. Mm-hmm. Um, and a lot of times, stuffs at night. Uh, this is a little bit different. This is, feels like more of a daytime neon noir because of this like sunny, drenched LA. But you still have that neon yeah. approach in several things. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, so that's what we've kind of talked about. We're discussing, as we kind of mentioned, To Live and Die in L.A., directed by William Friedkin, starring uh, William Peterson, Willem Dafoe, uh, John Pankow, uh, John Turturro, Deborah Fuhrer, and Dean Stockwell, and uh, cinematography by Robbie Mueller as well, and music by Wang Chung. And so I guess I'll ask you, Anna, what what is To Live and Die in L.A. about? It's a good cop, bad cop, but all cops, ACAB. <laughs> it's neon ACAB. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. Yeah, I don't know if it, that will fly. I don't know how that will fly with your audience. Um, we'll see. But. <laughs> but but yeah, it's a, it's about it's about this cop who is is uh, is he the good guy? But he, or is he the bad guy? He's a corrupt individual at least, and he is trying to. He's a secret service actually agent, mm-hmm. not a cop. I, 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 I stress that he's a secret service agent who is investigate investigating a counterfeiting ring after his former partner is killed by the lead counterfeiter who's played by Willem Dafoe and William Peterson plays the corrupt uh, secret service agent. And he's basically tracking down Willem Dafoe and trying to create this deal 
to kind of catch Defoe in, in, a, in, a, in, in this like sting operation, basically. But through a, a lot of different kind of uh, obstacles, he has to be corrupt and get money from the police force or from, from the government to essentially trap Defoe. So a lot of kind of cat and mouse stuff, but also this kind of undercover aspect of it as well. Um, so, so what is your history with To Live and Die in L.A.? Like, what was the first time you saw it? Have you watched mm-hmm. it a lot over the years? No. So the first time I saw To Live and Die in L.A., I actually I went back to on my on my letterbox and I think I logged it for the first time in 2015. Okay. So I think that must have been in my um, kind of. Uh, in my search for all the neon noirs, mm-hmm. I think I was trying to like uh, tick off all of them at one point. And um, I had seen Manhunter first. And I think I was, um, I was like, oh, another kind of like neon noir with William Peterson. So I remember um, fast tracking that one. And to be honest, like when we were chatting about like what movie we should do, and I suggested to live and die in LA. I was, I actually didn't remember anything about the plot except for <laughs> Willem Dafoe. <laughs> yeah. I, I remembered who was in that. it. I understand that. I understand that. I, I remembered, I remembered the car, the car chase. Yeah. Um, but, uh, and I don't know if, uh, <laughs> yeah, I, I think the main thing I was thinking about was honestly um, that one shot of um, Willem Dafoe. When he, um, with the mirror, is that the one you're talking about? Or different one. Different no, one. but I love that shot. That's a great shot. That I, I wrote that that shot down as I was watching it last night. I was like, oh my God, this is such an incredible shot. Yeah. Um, no, I was thinking of the shot of Willem Dafoe uh in the beginning of the film when he's lighting his painting on fire. Oh yeah. Um from behind and it's like that shot from behind with the painting like going up in flames with the eyes. Ugh, I just I think I hadn't been aware of Willem Dafoe as a young man up until watching to live and die in LA and actually after seeing to live and die in LA, I remember watching, um, the loveless. Oh yeah. The Catherine was, Bigelow. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Catherine Bigelow's film. Um, yeah. because I was like, I need more, I need more of this like young high cheekbone, like baby, um, Willem Dafoe. But yeah, that was the last time I watched it probably was 2015. Um, so it was really fun watching it again. Um, because I didn't remember a single thing about it. Yeah, so. I watched it a few years ago, <laughs> and I I loved it. But yeah, I was like, "What's the plot?" We just remember it was it was it was cool looking film. Yeah, if you want a young Willem Dafoe, we talked about last week Streets of Fire by Walter Hill, which Dafoe mm-hmm. it's like kind of like it was his follow up to The Loveless, basically. Mm-hmm. Uh, watch that because it's it's I mean Thomas and I were very Thomas was more mixed out than I was. I really like Streets of Fire, um, mm-hmm. but Dafoe is like the way he comes in in that movie and even this movie to an extent too it's like so fully formed as like an an antagonistic force in some way Mm -hmm. like Mm -hmm. what he kind of has is just already there it's like i was like if you watch streets of fire it fears feels like an early version of norman osborne in some way to me Interesting. Uh, so what it's and also for the editing as you're an editor it's like it's a well-edited movie Mm -hmm. um script is not that story let me phrase the dialogue is not that great Mm-hmm. Um, and that was where Thomas and I differed is that he, he put more, uh, importance on the script. And I really loved the visuals of it that kind of like, I think are mm-hmm. incredible. Anyway, that's last I'm, week. I'm probably, I'm, I, I'd be curious to see it then because I'm more in your camp, I think, which is, so I don't really care what kind of things they're saying half yeah. the time. I'm like, just 
show me a beautiful picture and something that's inspiring and makes me feel something. I don't really care what they're saying. I I agree. I'm kind of the same with music, you know, like lyrics don't really speak to me as much as like how a melody is or like, you know, that kind of thing. It depends on who you are, but yeah. So yeah, I had never, I hadn't seen to live in LA until like two, I think, well, I say two years COVID it's made time a flat circle. Um, (laughs) uh, I saw it pre COVID and it was like one of our movie nights that my friends and I do. And, and I'll say this early and there'll be spoilers here with this movie. But I remember as I was watching, I was like, man, I feel bad for uh, Bakovich because he just he's just such a good guy and he just keeps getting screwed. And then the ending happens. like, Oh, he's also a bad guy. Mm-hmm. I wasn't expecting that. Um, and that's what's kind of held up to me is that part of it. But yeah, it's just visually it's stunning. And we'll, and we'll discuss more. But let's let's dive into kind of how this movie gets into production. So it was the middle of the 1980s and Oscar winning director William Friedkin was having a tough time in Hollywood. Uh, After dominating the early 1970s with the French Connection and The Exorcist, it seems he's been spending years attempting to break out of movie jail after the failure of his 1977 film Sorcerer, a film that was a massive box office failure. I think it was like $22 million budget and it made like $8 million at the box office. Um, but it's, it's developed a cult following. And it's actually really one of his best works. Um, but yeah, after that, he made The Brinks Job, which was a crime comedy starring starring Peter Falk. He made Cruising, starring Al Pacino in 1980, which I also like. Uh, how do you feel about Cruising? Um, I'm going to be honest with you. I watched 30 minutes of it before we started this podcast. And you're like, so can't do it. I can't really. Well, I just I can't speak to the um, the piece as a whole. Yeah. yeah. Um. But I and I understand from that people say it's wildly homophobic and I haven't gotten quite to that in, intensity yet yeah, yeah. of it. But um, I actually kind of dug the vibes yeah. from what I saw. So I'm, I'm actually kind of curious to watch more. Um, I was a little like disenchanted when they said, um, oh, you're a young man in, in your late 20s. And I was like, <laughs> a, a 40 plus year old Al Pacino. In a, in a tank top and i was like i don't know about this guys i don't, yeah. know, I don't, know, I don't know so we'll yeah, see cruising, i'll keep watching it though i we did it we did a they did a midnight of it at a theater near me and that was one of the most interesting midnights because that movie is not just the content of it because there was there was a guy who programmed it who uh who was a gay man who was basically talking about how like it was it was weird how at the time they made it it was like it was being considered homophobic because of it was making gay men also like like they're in the leather and in these kind of like sex like clubs or whatever but then Mm -hmm. like those people that those kind of that kind of group was upset with the gay people who were protesting it for that because wait this is our lifestyle what do you what do you hate about this or what it was just an interesting dynamic and so they showed it kind of bringing all that up but like the mystery of cruising is so interesting and we that was the longest conversation i had after a midnight movie where we talked for like a, a, a half hour to an hour about just like what happens in that movie but talking about the how how visually interesting it was anyway mm. but he made cruising and it was somewhat of a success at the box office but it was it gained a lot of uh uh backlash because of the content then he made mm. which i think is kind of a i haven't seen it but it feels like a low point for someone who made french connection the exorcist but he makes a movie called the deal of the century in 1983 uh, like a war comedy starring Chevy Chase, Gregory Hines, and Sigourney Weaver. Both a failure at the box office and with critics, and it seemed that Hollywood's once hot director was not hot anymore. 
And after the release of that film, Friedkin got his hands on the manuscript to an up to upcoming novel called To Live and Die in L.A., a crime novel, as we said, about two Secret Service agents trying to capture a counterfeiter. The novel was written by Gerald Pitovich, who at the time of writing it was a Secret Service agent himself. And Pitovich had become a Secret Service agent in 1970, where his duties dealt with protecting the president, as usual, and investigating counterfeiting rings. And while he was there, he became, he started reading up, I think that he was in Paris for a brief time and got into literature as you do when you're like traveling to Paris and like on like, it's like a study abroad trip or whatever. But he got into the works of Graham Greene and John Le Carre and like Le Carre, uh, Petovich began writing novels while he was still working for the government. Before 11.9 LA, Petovich had written three other crime novels that were all released in 1983. So he was very prolific for a guy who was still working as a secret service agent. Uh, not so US. secret is he yeah apparently and they're all about like like government like like police secret service type stuff um but it was to live and die in la that caught the eye of friedkin and friedkin said he was fascinated about a secret service character that worked outside of washington dc so it was almost surreal to see that and he praised how authentic the novel was and that would prompt him to buy up the rights to the book, and he began adapting it as a screenplay. And as he was writing, he had constant conversations with Petovich about the story and the characters. Now, there's some conflict about who wrote some of the, the script. Petovich says that he would write a new scene if Friedkin needed it, but Friedkin said that he wrote the entire script. Um, either way, Friedkin felt like Petovich had helped out enough to gain co-writing credit on the film screenplay. So take what you will of who actually wrote what. But because of Friedkin's recent failures at the box office, he could get very little money for To Live and Die in L.A., only gathering $6 million for the film's budget. And while he initially looked at actors like Richard Gere, Jeff Bridges, and Harrison Ford to star in the film, he soon realized he had to create a cast of mostly unknown actors in order to get the movie made. And he went to his friend, Bob Weiner, who was a casting director before, who actually was coming out of retirement to help with this movie. And Weiner, I can't tell if he has, was worked a lot, but the two credits I have that I've seen were uh, Freakin's French Connection and then the later uh, cop drama, The Seven Ups, which also starred Roy Scheider from French Connection. Mm -hmm. um, but it was Weiner who apparently convinced Friedkin to go to Toronto and see a performance of Tennessee Williams' A Streetcar Named Desire, where a young actor by the name of William Peterson was acting in the play. And Peterson, who was actually based out of Chicago, uh, Peterson was actually based out of Chicago at that point, but he was working in Toronto and Canada at that, at that period. But he worked with the uh, famous Steppenwolf Theater Company in Chicago. And the company's co-founder, Gary Sinise, who later was in Forrest Gump and Apollo 13, says he auditioned for To Live and Die in L.A. and didn't get it, and he allegedly told them to look at Peterson for the role. And that's how I became aware of who he was. And Friedkin went to Toronto to see Peterson, apparently liked him enough to fly him to New York for an audition. And the story is that Friedkin offered the role of Richard Chance to Peterson in the middle of the audition because he liked him so much. Um, and at this point, Peterson had only been in one film, and as I was saying earlier, it's a blinking, bleak, blink and you miss it part in Michael Mann's Thief. He's in Thief for a very brief moment as a bartender. I did miss it then. Yeah, it's it's. I it's, must have blinked. 
Well, it's like someone's kind of in front of him, but it's when James Conn comes in to get Tuesday Weld from the bar to go do the big, like, eight-minute-long conversation at the diner or whatever. But yeah. the bartender comes up and says, like, tries to stop him, and it's William Peterson, like, with long hair and a beard. Very different look. And I was like, oh was, that, was that William Peterson right there? It's like, very brief. I think it's time I rewatched Thief. I mean, you might as well. It's a great film. My, my, yeah. It's, yeah. It's one of uh, those. It's one of those. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and when it came to his partner, uh, John uh, Vokovich, uh, Peterson recommended his friend and fellow Chicago actor, John Pankow, for the role. Pankow had appeared in a few movies up to that point, like in Tony Scott's The Hunger, where he played First Phone Booth Youth, was his <laughs> was his name, uh, and, Ra- and Rambo First Blood Part 2, where he played POW number six. Iconic. Uh, Iconic. Uh, Peterson actually brought Pankow over to Friedkin's New York apartment the day after Peterson was hired so that Friedkin could see Pankow in the role. And he was essentially hired kind of on the spot. So needless to say, two, two of the main actors, two of the main stars of Friedkin's crime comeback movie were unknown as you can get. So you're telling me he didn't put a lot of thought into who he cast as his leads. Well, I don't think he put a lot of thought, but I just think he was like, oh, I can't get big actors. <laughs> who is cheap? And, yeah, and, let's get this guy in this play in Toronto and his friend. And his friend and his buddy. Um, that, that'll out. work. It worked out perfectly. Um, out of the main actors that were cast, Willem Dafoe was the one who'd been in the most films at that point. As I said, he was in Walter Hill's Streets of Fire and also in Catherine Bigelow's directorial debut. He also had an uncredited role in Tony Scott's The Hunger. So like Pancal, I guess we're just like kind of floating around in the New York Chicago scene. That's cool, and I, like I would consider the hunger kind of like on that neon noir kind of list. It's like yeah. horror neon noir. I would I would agree with that. Yeah, that's that. kind of fun. They have a they have a theme going. Those guys. It's weird I, with the, with some of these. Like we talked about this with Streets of Fire last week. Was how like there are connections to Blade Runner, where they almost cast several Blade Runner actors in the movie, and also had a Blade Runner like art department team on streets mm-hmm. of fire so it's like something's in the in the in the air with these movies where there's some sort of connections to them in some way mm-hmm. yeah um but then Friedkin would round up the cast with other character actors including dean stockwell who had started working as a child actor in hollywood in the 1940s but hadn't mm-hmm. really had much of a breakout um he, he hadn't done blue velvet yet at this point and then new york actor john taturo who had only been in a few bit parts up to this point Mm-hmm. So with the cast, a script, and a small $6 million budget, Friedkin and his team moved into principal photography, and that leads us to favorite scenes. So Anna, what is one of your favorite scenes in this movie? Can I just say that you left out Jane Leaves in your cast list? I, I, you can put Jane Leaves. I was going to bring, she she come back in later, but yes, Jane Leaves uh, from Frasier fame. Yes. Does she have <laughs> a line in this movie? I don't know if she does. No, she's just like she's just she's, smoldering. She is because I was like watching. I was like, where do I know her from? Where I do I know her from? Thing. Yeah, I was like, and then like I was watching in the second scene she was in when she, uh, when um, Bianca comes down the stairs and she's yeah. like presenting herself to yeah. her. Yeah, I was like, oh my god, that's Daphne Moon. Like, <laughs> oh my god, girl! Like, what are you doing? Because like she's such a woo-woo witchy girl. Yes, in Fraser, and I just was like. I just wasn't expecting it. It was almost like I almost was, I almost felt like I wanted to like cover my eyes and be like, no, like this isn't you, sweetie. Like, 
This is this is the rough days. This is when you're paying yeah. when you're paying off yeah. the co- college loans or something. I don't know what's going on. Exactly. Yeah. She's like exactly. Exper- it's like it's like an experimental dancer. Like where they like it's like, it's an art like there it's a weird art world type thing that they're in. Uh, that's just what they did in the eighties. Yeah, yeah. They they just did the experimental modern dance thing. That um, and cocaine. They were all about it. That and cocaine. Yeah. Two big yeah, things. Exactly. Um, um yeah, favorite scenes. Favorite scene. Or one of them. One of them. Yeah, we're just yeah, we'll go okay. through our list. Yeah, I know. I have I have so many. Um, mine are more like moments rather than um, yeah, Se- you know, yeah. sequences. I agree. Um, that's just kind of how my brain works, where I just fixate on a a shot rather than a scene. But um, in terms of sequences, I actually love the airport scene so much. Yeah. Chasing yeah. John Turturro. Turturro. Yeah. How, how how the heck do you say Turturro? Turturro. Turturro. Yeah. Um, uh, chasing him to the airport and when chance like jumps up on the the moving uh Mm -hmm. sidewalk in in the airport it's so good um and i just love that three-way standoff in the bathroom it's so it's like one of the one of the only like real like funny moments i think in the movie where they're like let's have a bit of a joke here yeah where he's like oh i was just coming to to pee and that guy kind of like interrupts their their standoff um that was really fun i love that scene um I think we've already established that I like any scene with Willem Dafoe in it. Um, yeah. <laughs> I don't I I don't want to embarrass myself on this podcast and just talk about his cheekbones the whole time so I won't. But um I just thoroughly enjoy any scene that he's in. Um cuz he's an ama- amazing actor and I like to look at his face. Yeah. Um I mean he has a he has a good face. Like it's it's a, it's a very it's a it's unique a face. face. It's a very unique face is the thing. Yes, it is. But yeah, it's, it's a like a beautiful face. I believe it's a beautiful face. You don't have to say it. I mean, it's a beautiful face, sure. <laughs> I, I, I as like a, as someone who's like directing, it's like he, it's a very unique face, is the thing. Yes. Um, and it's someone where like, it's weird. It's like it's so interesting seeing him as he gets older, where like he could play someone like in the Florida Project, but then can mm-hmm. also play just like a menacing villain as well. I feel like he he had to age into that to his current face mm-hmm. to do roles like that of these more um kind-hearted characters than at this at this point in time and like when i think about my favorite willem dafoe role i think of uh klaus in uh life aquatic with steve zissou Mm -hmm. like he's just like this mild-mannered little german man who just wants the affection (laughs) of steve zissou like thanks a lot for not picking me and he's just like this like sad little like man who just wants like this like the affection and attention of yeah. like this man he admires. I think it's a very sweet role for him. Yeah. Um, and I, and I know, he doesn't get as many of those anymore now that he's like, um, you know, Robert Eggers' main guy. Yeah. So now well, he's a, doing all the weird roles. It's interesting because because Defoe, yeah, he he kind of he it's a wave with him. It's a roller coaster where like he has those moments where like, oh yeah, I haven't seen him in a while, and then it's just like a boom, like everyone in like the film fan role or whatever starts like falling in love with him again. And everyone starts casting him, um, mm-hmm. but yeah, but oh yeah, he is he is fantastic. I, I love, I mean, I love the stuff when he's doing the counterfeiting, like when he's like the mm-hmm. whole process of that and the way that's done. Um, and he yeah, he's just a kind of, and with this, it's like with this movie, and we talked about this kind of previously with the uh, Blade Runner. It's like I don't know, like yeah, he's a counterfeiter, but we don't. But outside of that even though it is illegal, like Peterson's this very corrupt individual. That's not really a 
great guy by any means. And so like, mm-hmm. th- there's a lot of just like, I mean, he's funding the arts probably with that counterfeiting money. I can't complain about that. That's that's a joke. Um, <laughs> but like, but yeah, it's like you know, like Defoe's not just a. Str- I mean, even though we do have him kill the cop early on in the movie, so I guess you say he's a very straight villain. Yeah, he's he's not a good guy. I'm not saying he's a good guy. I'm just saying that <laughs> the good guys are not really good guys. No. And so that makes you like, I mean, I don't know. It makes you question no, certain things. No, you're right. That's like one of the interesting things about this movie is that it's like, it's not like you have the cops who are like the moral compass and then the mm-hmm. villain. Um, even though like a lot of like noir films, the whole point is that you're like tempted into corruption. Yeah. Yeah. But, you know, in like, like we talked about earlier, it's um, because of the, the, the Hayes Code. Yeah. Like they were never truly tempted or they just about made it. Or if they were tempted, they obviously have to be jailed because that's or, the consequence yeah. of doing bad things. Yes. Um, whereas in this film, it's like uh, someone doing bad things who's the villain and then a cop doing bad things. And then they're just all doing bad things together. And um, everyone kind of gets their comeuppance sort of yeah. and even the person who you think is the moral compass of the film so like if we had to pick yes. one it would be it would be Vukovic yeah Vukovic yeah, yeah. Um, even him it's like okay so he's the one who's keep- keeping us on the straight and narrow um, he's the one who doesn't necessarily want to be doing all these bad things he's being swayed by this bad cop and then at the end you're kind of like okay so he's the one who survives he's the one who survived the movie he's so the good guy yeah he's the good guy justice prevailed the good person who didn't want to be dragged into all of this is the one who survived and then you see in the last scene that he's no, he's actually just taken on the like role of chance. He's taken yeah. on William Peterson's role and he's carrying on the legacy of being yeah. a corrupt cop. Yeah, it's such so a really dark, it's like yeah. it's such a bad, dark cycle. Yeah, like exactly. everyone's bad. <laughs> yeah. If that's what makes it so just again at this period in time, we're in the eighties with these movies that I think weren't as accepted at the time or we now look back of like, this was a great film is because they had these darker endings that in the eighties, certain people were not ready for yet. Is yeah. that like, yeah, like I was like, I mean, Vukovic, I feel so bad. Like he's like, he doesn't want to be here. He has so many doubts. He's going to Dick Stockwell, Dean Stockwell, like, yo, how can I get out of this? I don't like, I don't want to be um, implicated in any of this. Like, what do I do? I'm just so torn. Like these people have died because of us. And then at the end, it's just like, I want the same deal that you had with him. And you're like, oh shit, this guy, it's just this, it's just a cycle is what it is for for these people. It's like once he got a little bit of a taste of it and once he kind of, it's almost like he's living on that high of like he survived and it's like, oh, let me keep going is the thing. Totally. It's like in that, in the car chase in the movie when they're like almost die a million times and, uh, chances, uh, Chance is just like so like stoked and like yes. high off the adrenaline. And it's like it all goes back. Obviously, there's like all the tie ins with like his base, his bridge jumping thing, you know, the, the adrenaline he's seeking and stuff and how he gets a high off of it. And like he's so like high off of being alive after this car chase. And Vukovic is in the backseat, just like die, like groaning. And like he like doesn't want to be there. He's not enjoying it. But then maybe once like Chance is gone, it's like he's like taking on that role and he's now going to get like highs off of like surviving this whole thing. And, you know, he's the one who went right up against masters at the end. So he, and he survived. So he's like, okay, like this is like my renewal, my Renaissance. And that part. So again, like 
unique of like you you literally have your main character get killed before the big showdown in a way is what happens with, with peterson and like and it's shocking to see and it's what this film does well is that it has a good pov shift because uh vukovic again not that big in the first half but then slowly you have a few more scenes of him outside of uh chance it's the it's the dean stockwell scenes it's whatever so Mm -hmm. you see a little bit more and then when that shooting happens and chance gets killed it's Mm -hmm. that complete switch this other character and Mm -hmm. it actually the transition works incredibly well it's not just some big shock of like oh god we weren't leading to this but we were leading to like we're seeing this character essentially go down the rabbit hole of corruption Mm -hmm. you're seeing the you're seeing the beginning of it for one character and the end of it for another is what's happening yeah and it feels like a pretty smooth transition Mm -hmm. yeah um and what i find also interesting about that scene i mean it's pretty bold first of all that they allowed their main character to be shot or Mm -hmm. killed in such a violent way but it was also by like a just a random a kind of yeah. Uh, yeah that's what I'm looking for I was like what is it a lackey no a henchman he was shot by a henchman it wasn't yeah. even masters the the guy he was chasing who he was trying to like avenge his partner yeah. um for like it was just a random henchman that kind of that's kind of interesting that like this important character is taken down by that yeah but it's also but it also mirrors what happens to his former partner Hart who gets killed in the beginning by the same exact guy in yes. a similar in a similar way where it's it's a it's He's grabbing the money, and that's saying it's mm-hmm. a different type of deal. But he's finding the money, and this is mm-hmm. that's happening here is that it's the money deal gone wrong. Um, totally. A few more scenes I like. I I love really anything with John Turturro. I think John <laughs> Turturro when when he is with Peterson when he's being interrogated, and he's like, "If you want to, if if you want to pitch and go to the park," is what he says. I just I love that line so it's much. So good. I actually wrote down that line too because I was like, yes. "This line is incredible." I don't even understand what it means. Like, if you want a pigeon, what does that mean? Well, pigeon is like, a, it's slang for like someone who talks, like who, who's a snitch. And like, I didn't you, know that. I just yeah. thought it was a very, I thought it was a random no. line and I thought it was really funny and I wrote it down. Yeah. So that's why it's like, if you want a pigeon, go to the park. Like he's like, I'm not, I'm not a, I'm not a stool pigeon. I don't, I don't rat on my friends. There's a lot of lines. People. There's a lot of lines like that in this movie. Like the kind of, um, here's the thing and here's the action that you need to do to yeah it's like there was one uh if you if you want bread fuck a baker like <laughs> <laughs> do you remember that? yeah like there's just like these like really random lines that are just yeah. like so like no normal person would ever Let's say, say them yeah they're just so um of that world that like hyper like all these dramatic men making these huge dramatic ridiculous statements i just i love it i just i love it i can't yeah. <laughs> no, I, I agree. It's, it's it, and it, it it works for this world. But yeah, and another Totoro scene. I love when he when Peterson shows up at his his girlfriend's apartment. Totoro's girlfriend's apartment. Mm. And yeah, the hallway scene. The hallway scene is amazing. It's so I have that list. I was gonna say that one next. Yeah, we don't even need. Yeah, I love the hallway scene. It's so good. Like the suspense in that scene is just amazing. I just yeah, I totally am with you on that one for sure. The way it's um, framed and the way like yes. Totoro goes from like, okay, honey. And then slowly, and like Pearson doesn't really make a move, mm-hmm. and then he gets the gun from the uh, uh, from the bathroom or whatever, comes out, and it's just like your girlfriend was in the SAG after phone book or whatever he said. It's like she, it's like <laughs> her union card is what gave it away. Um, and she, I never, knew, I've never seen it before in my life. But yeah, it's like, but the way it's just that simple framing of like 
of of just this like th- I guess three shot this wide shot of them where just that wall has adds so much tension to mm-hmm. what's gonna happen uh and it's done so incredibly well it's yeah I agree that like dividing wall where you're just like where you can see the action playing out on either side and it's so exciting to know what each side is doing yeah it's just it's a really unique shot I I really really love that and it's a long take it's like it is it's a minute and a half or a minute yeah it's they hold it yeah. for, for a while yeah and then a similar fashion with shots of just like a wide shot that's like kind of back. It's like we, t- we mentioned earlier on the shot when um, Defoe goes to his girlfriend and the dressing room mm-hmm. and that mirror shot. I'm just like, how the Stunning. hell did they do this? It's so. Yeah. Like where where's the camera? First I, I think but... the camera is like I think she is disguising the camera when she, she's sitting um, in her chair in front of her mirror. And I think the camera is like right in front of right mm-hmm. in front of her for that she's it's not seeing the mirror basically yeah. but it's 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 so like that's such a simple shot mm-hmm. but you know it's so hard to pull that off so hard and it what i think is so brilliant about that scene um and that shot is that they introduce you to the idea of what of a mirror in the shot before revealing that the whole wall is a mirror. exactly and it's, so like yeah. she's doing her makeup in the mirror and you're like oh what a nice shot and then you see uh willem dafoe approaching in the background and it looks just like a normal, like, oh, there's a door on the other side. He's, he's coming walking. into yeah. the shot mm-hmm. and he's not. And then it's revealed he's coming in from the foreground. And I think it's like, oh, we already saw the mirror. So we established, I mean, we don't need world building for mirrors. We understand what mirrors are. But like, it kind of like <laughs> draws your eye to the mirror and you're like, ah, yes, a mirror. And then you just don't recognize that the entire room is a mirror. And it's just like that reveal when he comes in out of like the right side of the frame is just, I actually gasped. I was like, I was not <laughs> expecting it at all. <laughs> It was a shock. It was just such a well done shot. It was yeah. so good. And yeah. like, and especially in eighty five, like nowadays, it's like you'll figure out a way to get around that and c- yeah, put it cut out and post or whatever. But like at that point, it's like you just that's you do that on the set. Like that's a yeah, you have to know it's your really angles. Impressive. Yeah, it is. Yeah, I remember reading a not reading. I think I saw like a Reddit post. <laughs> I pretend <laughs> that I read, but I actually just go and read it. Um, there's like a on the make movie making uh, subreddit, someone was posting photos of um, the shot in the Matrix where I can't remember if someone was opening a door and like the reflection was in the door handle and like the camera is in the shot. Yeah. But they've just they disguised it in such a way like it was yeah. part of the per- of the costume or something or other. And it was like they instead of trying to edit it out and post or anything, they just disguised what the camera looked like in order to like sell the shot, which I thought was really cool. Yeah. And yeah. now, and nowadays, it's just like we'll we'll do something. We'll do it in post and just take Boring. it out. Boring. Yeah. Do, do it in post. Yeah. Don't do it in post because then I have to deal with it. You don't want to deal with it. <laughs> I have to sell the shot in my timeline, and I have to do. Someone will inevitably ask me to do a temporary, like a temp VFX <laughs> shot, and I'll I'll have to do it to sell yeah. the shot. Um, and I don't want to do that. Don't yeah. make me do it. Yeah, don't make Anna do that. Don't make uh, me do it. Uh, the last big scene I want to talk about it's just the car chase. Hmm. Mm-hmm. the car chase is just so incredibly done and like it's 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 so because I, I there's not a lot of car chases in well a lot of like good car chases in move in movies so it's like that freak, right that freakins had like two of them <laughs> yeah that's the thing is like when you're i i was looking up um because i i wanted to rewatch the french connection car chase after watching this um to remind myself and it's really incredible how there are like people like kind of establish that there are like three incredible car chases. Like they always say, like it's French Connection, 
the one from Bullet, and this one. And yeah, two of them are are freaking. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's really he really has kind of like created a little world for himself with car chases. Yeah, and it's like impressive that he even. And like I, I didn't know I, I don't know a ton about his films. I've seen a couple of them and um watched thirty minutes of cruising. So, you know, don't don't ask me too many. Take questions. what you will. <laughs> Take yeah. what you will from someone who has seen thirty minutes of cruising. But um it's interesting how he had so much success with French Connection and people uh, you know, loved the car chase specifically, and then he had this series of failures, and then with his low budget, mm-hmm. not not famous actor movie he said you know what i'm gonna try and do another car chase um like i think that's just a really bold move because he's imagine if he had done a bad car chase in his low budget movie with not good actors he would have been like he completely lost his touch like he's done for exactly but instead he was like i'm gonna take this i'm gonna make a really bold move and i'm Mm -hmm. gonna try and do an incredible car chase in this movie and i honestly i like it better than the french connection car chase (laughs) Well, I think it's so exciting. It's different because yes, the, yeah. the French Connection one is a lot simpler and, yes. you know, it's it's more and, linear. And but... I think he also had less control in the French Connection in terms of how he blocked that car chase because they just basically shot that, like, just them driving. Like, there was no, like, they didn't shut down streets. They were doing that as right. is. And this is more, we'll talk about in, in kind of onset life, a more constructed car chase. Mm-hmm. And, and what, but what I like about his car chases this one and then even even uh french connection is that they're both really based not just in the story aspect but also i think character is mm-hmm. that like is that it works for a character beat for peterson that like he's going all the way no matter what with this thing to pull off the job like he's gonna right. ignore all boundaries like he's like he's like running away from cops he's running away from his peers basically because he's but he so- didn't know they were cops did he I think he has an idea of it, or maybe maybe not. Maybe I don't I, think he knew they were cops at that really? point. I okay. thought I thought he just thought maybe I'm mis maybe I'm misinterpreting. Can, I I yeah, we can debate about it later. But. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, wait, no, we might be, one of us might be wrong, one of us might be right. But like, it, 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 but either way, he's still so well. May, maybe they start to realize it as they're driving because they're like, why? Who are all these people? that are coming after us. Cause it's not just right. like one car. It's like, there's the random guy, uh, on, in the, in the LA river, like shooting a guy's like, where is this guy coming from? Like, where are these people right. coming from? It's two different cars. Like what's happening. Um, but yeah, it's like, you can just tell he's so by hell or high water. I'm going to, I'm going to get away from these people. Yes. Like I've gone too far. I can't back out. And, mm-hmm. And and with French Connection with Popeye Doyle, it's like it's still both obsessions in some. With Popeye, it's the obsessed him obsessed of trying to catch the guy because that's mm-hmm. what he does. And with this, it's like he's gonna get he's gonna pull his job off no matter what because mm-hmm. it's it's essentially kind of a heist at the end of the day, like this a heist sequence. Um, and the question yeah, totally. is, does Defoe? Because at the end of that, Defoe when they meet back up, Defoe says, "I like your work." So does he know about what what about what happened with the car chase and everything? I like your work. That's what that when when, when Peter Peterson goes and drops off the money or whatever mm-hmm. at the um at the art pl- or at the at the dancer place or whatever, and Defoe like takes it and was like, "We'll meet you on Friday." He goes, "Oh yeah, by the way, I like your work," and starts laughing. So it's almost like he know he knew about this car chase basically. Right. Just, it's just a weird. I hadn't, I hadn't thought about that. Yeah, it's just a weird kind of throwaway line. Throw, it feels like that means nothing, but I think he's aware of like what he did to get this money. I only, I, 
I can't remember that line. I think I was too focused on the line where he asks about uh, the package. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> he's like, oh yeah, oh, it was for me. He, he's like, for- is that pat? He's like, is that package for me? <laughs> and then he and then he goes walks away from him and like crumples up the bill and looks Peterson up and down and is like, you're beautiful. <laughs> um, yeah. And then, um, and, then, and then Peterson. I'm the brings- wrong person for this podcast, Brandon, because it's just a thirst trap for me. That's all it's this movie a- <laughs> is. That's all it is for me. I'm just, I, I just want You're William beautiful. Peterson and Willem Dafoe to kiss. That's all I want. That's a, that's, and that's, it doesn't happen. That's your and, fan. Uh, that's your I'm fan. Upset fiction. About it. That's your fan fiction for to live in L.A. Yeah, literally. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, if I if I wrote fan fiction, it would be I would be the only person making fan fiction for to live in town. <laughs> <laughs> I should actually create that niche for myself. It's, I bet you there's some other girl out there or boy uh, out there who's uh, wanting this as well. It's just it's Defoe and Pearson after a, a night of like the art, the dancing art like showcase. Well, they honestly like this movie is full of queer baiting, honestly, because mm-hmm. Willem Defoe. After that dance sequence, you just yeah. see the silhouette of someone who looks quite masculine. Yeah. And then you see Willem Dafoe come up and kiss yeah, them. Yeah, you're right. I and they're making this, out. And then, that, yeah. yeah. And then there's the reverse shot. And it's you You can tell it's clearly a woman. And she takes off her wig. And it's like, they wanted us to be like, oh. It's, it's, very, it's very purposeful. And it is very, there are these like kind of moments where he, and sh- his girlfriend is bi as well. Or bi, like she's yeah, obviously... Yeah. Uh, hooks up with women as well so there is this kind of like world where i'm kind of like is willem defoe like is is masters like i think he might be because they keep kind of having these moments where you assume that he's uh like kissing a man or he's kind of making a suggestive um you know line towards william peterson and when he says that line like is that package for me you don't see where his hands are exactly it's it's immediate it's a shot with chest up and he's facing him and so you're kind of like what what's going on down there? You know, like you kind of wonder. At least that's what I wonder. Yeah. I, don't, I don't know what else, what was going through your mind, but I'm I'm glad we got to that in favorite scenes. That that's the thing. That's a good place <laughs> to put it. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I love the bridge jumping sh- bridge jumping yeah, it, scene. Again, that's a great kind of. Look, we, we can just talk. Yeah, every scene I I, I enjoy. <laughs> so yeah, you like yeah. You like the movie. I mean, it's like <laughs> the the opening like kind of weird terrorist thing is it, it gets you in the world of mm-hmm. this character i don't know if you need it as much i don't know like, i personally didn't i don't know necessarily what it added except to um remind us that they are secret, secret service, service and not cops. that was the only yeah because i kept forgetting i thought i just kept thinking they were cops because they don't really talk about it otherwise but i think they needed to be like ah yes here they are they're protecting the president um Ron, was it ronald reagan yeah reagan yeah reagan, reagan yeah, yeah okay yeah um so, yeah, like, I'm like, okay, yes, I understand this world and I understand, you know, what they're doing now, but I, I didn't need to know that mm-hmm. necessarily. I could have just been just as happy thinking they were cops the whole movie. Yeah. And, like, I think it's like his intro could literally just be him jumping off the bridge in a way. And, and you'd be like, who is this guy? That would have been, actually, you know what? That would have been so much more interesting because yeah. you're like, what is this guy's story? Because they're standing on a bridge. That's never a good opener. Yeah. yeah. You, okay, you're going to, what are you going to do? Um, I think they could have probably just started the movie with that. I think you're right. Uh, but then they would have had to do a little bit more kind of um, explaining about his partner, maybe. Like, because I, I did like that tender moment with his partner on the rooftop. Oh, yeah, on after. the rooftop, yeah. So I think I think they would have needed a little bit more of a moment between them before yeah. 
uh, or like they needed to build out that like bar scene with them or something. But yeah, yeah. Um, that's fair. Yeah, 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 I didn't need I didn't need the opening scene. Yeah, that, that was a Friedkin ad, I believe. Friedkin added that in the script. All right, Onset Life. So because this was Friedkin's lowest budget film since The French Connection in 1971, so 14 mm-hmm. years later, he realized mm-hmm. that he would have to treat this film like it was an independent film. And that meant adapting a run-and-gun style to it. So he hired multiple crew members who had worked mostly on indie films. And the key, the key hire was Robbie Mueller, who is the film cinematographer. And Mueller was a Dutch cinematographer who worked on several uh, Van Vender's films and other indie films of the 70s and 80s. Uh, Mueller then hired an entirely non-union crew for his camera department uh, for this movie. And because of the low budget, they weren't able to really build any sets. They shot everything on location. And as I said, they shot everything very quickly. Uh, Most of the time, they would use the first take and move on. Hmm. Uh, Breedkin hated doing rehearsals, so he would give the actors like things to rehearse, but then shoot the scene with them kind of like not knowing a lot of the time. Um, And then sometimes he'd also just let them improvise and play out the scenes as long as they needed to. there were certain scenes where they didn't have any blocking plan. And so like sort of the bar, some of the bar scenes or whatever that he would just say, like, Hey, go into the bar uh, and we'll shoot you and we'll figure it out. He'd tell Mueller to shoot them, try to keep them in frame. If they aren't in frame, they aren't in the movie and that's their problem. <laughs> Brutal. So, yeah. <laughs> uh, and one of the biggest stories from set about a one take, you mentioned this scene earlier is when William Peterson runs across the divider in the middle of the moving sidewalk on at LAX mm-hmm. They did a rehearsal of the scene, but like the head of airport security was like, you guys can't do this. This is unsafe. The insurance won't cover this if he gets hurt. And Pearson told Friedkin, I think we should shoot it. That's what we came. We came here to shoot this scene. And Friedkin's like, okay, I'll tell them you're not going to do it. You do whatever you want to. I'll shoot whatever. This is Friedkin talking to Pearson. I'll do whatever. And so before I do the take, Friedkin's like, to everyone so everyone can hear, he tells Pearson, don't run the divider. And <laughs> Pearson, like, yeah, yeah, for sure. And they do the take, and he gives him enough room where he can actually get Pearson, jump on the divider, and run across. And apparently the airport security was highly upset. Um, but they got <laughs> they got it in one take. And he he hops up there quick and he is running across that thing. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> they were also afraid that people thought they could actually do that if they saw the movie, basically. Like someone might try mm. to attempt that if they saw it in the film. Um, for the counterfeiting scenes, they actually hired an actual counterfeiter to be on set during the scene and also help Defoe or to help teach Defoe how to do it. And also when Defoe wasn't shown in the shot, they had the consultant do the actions as well. So it made, made it look real on film. I think mm-hmm. also they were actually really printing counterfeit money when they were doing it and so they're like in the desert like hiding away so they wouldn't get caught because they might get arrested for printing counterfeit money um so yeah wow and there uh, that will actually come into play a little bit later in the aftermath of this or in, a, in the film facts oh so, really yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh the initial script of the film took place in the kind of valley area of los angeles so more traditional areas you see in movies but mm-hmm. Lily Kilvert, who was she was the film's production designer, she wanted to showcase parts of L.A. that weren't shown that much on film. So they shot down in Long Beach, which is like south of L.A. proper. And that's like where you see Bianca's house with those huge bridges 
and the mm-hmm. background that's down by like the shipyards and stuff down there and so they, they wanted to shoot on the outskirts of what you usually see uh in in la movies they even shot like in a lot of gang areas basic gang areas like watts and places around la so it it was very much like guerrilla style shooting for certain things um now let's talk about the car chase so because it was the most dangerous sequence in the movie they saved it for the end of the shoot the the filming of the car chase took six weeks to shoot um freaking apparently had come up with the idea 20 years before about a car going the opposite way in traffic because it actually happened to him he was apparently driving home from a wedding in chicago when he fell asleep at the wheel woke up and realized he was going the wrong way oh my god and he was like i want to put i want to put that in a movie someday but i don't know how to do it and so yeah (laughs) that would i would hate to do that i'm just like i'm just like how did you how like how did you just like i guess swerve over is what it was i guess so i'm surprised he didn't hit anybody though like as he was asleep yeah that's that that's intense that's a lot yeah but yeah i think he told the stunt coordinator like hey i want to do this thing if you can come up with a good idea we'll do it if not we won't shoot it apparently I came up with a good idea for the movie and they did this stunt and so william peterson does most of his own stunt driving in the film so that's why john pankow's reactions are pretty authentic they're pretty realistic <laughs> of like him freaking out by pearson driving um robbie mueller the dp didn't feel like he knew how to shoot this car chase or he didn't know how to, how to stage it so he did not shoot this sequence it was actually the film's second unit cinematographer robert uh, yeoman who would later be wes anderson's dp who shot oh, wow. this sequence yeah that is that's so random um <laughs> <laughs> i'm just yeah. like someone who's like for someone's aesthetic that's so like reliant on like symmetry and like mm-hmm. you know locked off shots um that's so funny that such a hectic scene was shot by that guy because he apparently knew, he knew how to like i guess do all the pieces and again mm. mueller who's more of the run and gun style this had to be more deliberate because it was so dangerous right um right. for the freeway section of the chase they shot down near long beach as well for three straight weekends and they rented 900 cars for this sequence uh they closed down the freeway for freeway for four hours at a time which allowed the crew to stage and shoot the scene uh, apparently there were some delays and reportedly cost the film or made the film go over go a one million dollars over budget for this sequence Wow. Um, and now with principal ph- photography done they moved into post-production and that leads us to the aftermath so since the beginning of production, Friedkin had thoughts of killing off Richard Chance in the film's finale. Originally, it was supposed to be Vokovich who was killed in the in the kind of deal gone wrong. Um, they shot the scene where Chance was killed. The studio saw it and thought it was too much of a downbeat of an ending. Uh, and they wanted uh, Peterson to survive the gunshot. So to satisfy MGM, who was the gunshot to his face. Correct. (laughs) Correct. They wanted him to survive the gunshot to his face. (laughs) Okay, cool. I just wanted to make sure I was was up to speed. (laughs) So they did it. They did a second ending where it was a gunshot to the stomach, I believe. Gotcha. Okay. And that's when he survives. But the actual, but after that they survive, but to get their comeuppance, Chance and Vokovich are transferred to a remote secret service station in Alaska. 
It's what it is. I think this is online somewhere. Let me see. I want to make sure. Like the the original scene. The original scene. <gasps> um, oh my god. And they said it was. I haven't been able to look yet. Um, and basically they did a preview for it, and Friedkin hated it and was like, "No, we're going back to the original ending, of um, of them, of them, uh, in or of them uh, of Chance being killed." And them going off to, uh, to or the, and and basically Vokovich becoming the guy. Um, let's see, I'm looking for what. Yeah, it's on. Yeah, it sounds like a far better ending, honestly. Yeah, if you look it up, there is there is the sand line of them in Alaska, watching their boss talk on TV. <laughs> so yeah, very different, very different, and what ended up happening. Um, I need to like, I need to see this now, like. Yeah, just to, to live in LA. Often ending is what it's on YouTube. Often ending. I'm gonna I'm gonna bookmark that for. Actually, yeah. I'm just gonna skip ahead. Okay, well now I'm just watching it, so it's fine. I'll cut stuff out. <laughs> <laughs> so sad. I hate it. It's... <laughs> what are you talking about? It's terrible. And that's why freaking was like, "No, we can't do this." No, it's terrible. He's just like poor. Vukovic is just like in his in his like big parka and William Peterson's just like lying in bed like what that doesn't just, give me anything that, I just was like oh they, he survived we're good but they're in Alaska yeah, now no. yeah. yeah no not into yeah. it yeah. no um and so when it so so with that they changed so they kept the original ending and and then when it came to the music for the film uh Friedkin asked Wang Chung to compose the score and the songs for the movie um, it was an interesting career move for the band since they were mostly known as a pop band and the movie allowed them to kind of experiment more. Uh, Friedkin said that he picked them because they stood out from the rest of contemporary music and um, he feel, he felt that when they recorded, what they recorded not only enhanced the movie, it gave it a deeper, more powerful dimension. Mm-hmm. And every song on the soundtrack except the film's title song and their previous song called Wait, which is in the, in the, in the movie, was written and recorded in a two-week period. Wow. So very quick turnaround. The group then decided to write the title song after they saw the rough cut of the film, but Freakin told them not to write a title song because it felt like it might come off as a joke of them singing a song called To Live and Die in L.A. (laughs) Wang Chung ignored Freakin and decided to write one anyway and record it, which he eventually loved. And and they said, if someone smart tells you not to do something, you should do it. So he says, go the opposite way. Um, yeah, I, I buy I buy that. Yeah, yeah. The film would be released on November first, nineteen eighty five, in a little over a thousand theaters in America and Canada. Uh, it would only gross three point six million dollars, finishing second behind Death Wish three, starring Charles Bronson. Uh, mm. But the film. Uh, was decent at the box office and actually became a pretty decent sized hit for what the budget was and it made 17.3 million dollars against its six million dollar budget so mm-hmm. it was a decent little kind of comeback movie for Friedkin. critics however were mixed on the movie it was a year after the first it was a year after the first season of miami vice and people felt Friedkin was trying to rip off the style of that tv show they also felt that he was trying to match what he had done with the French Connection, but that he failed in reaching those same heights. Uh, Variety called it over the top, and the Washington Post said that it was it was recklessly violent and that it didn't match the standards of a cop drama like Starsky and Hutch, the TV show, which had they established in Starsky and Hutch. Um, 
Very, t- yeah. Well, yeah, is the Starsky and Hutch, uh, having never seen the TV show, uh, is that like a pinnacle of cop? It was pretty big. It was pretty big. Again, I wasn't I, alive. I, I saw the remake with uh, Adam, uh, no, Ben Stiller. Ben Stiller and Owen Wilson. And Owen Wilson. <laughs> I love that movie as a very, kid. <laughs> it, it, now, now, that was more of a comedy like kind of like version of it. It was more serious, um, but it was more of a 70s cop show. Gotcha. More serious 70 cop show. But people kind of saw that as like the pinnacle of cop TV. Mm-hmm. Um, and so they were comparing it to this. But they were saying it was just too violent. Uh, other mm-hmm. famed critics like Leonard Malton and Janet Maislin were also dim- dismissive of the film, criticizing the characters and the story, but praised the car chase, saying that was kind of the only shining thing uh, in the mo- movie. I think Malton also praised the score from Wang Chung. Uh However, the biggest supporter of the film was Roger Ebert, who gave the film a perfect four out of four stars, praying Friedkin's direction and the performances. He also praised the story, saying the film isn't just about cops and robbers, but about two systems of doing business and how one of the systems finds a way to change itself in order to defeat the other. He goes, Mm. it's interesting. So is the car chase. Um, And since 1985, time has helped this film with critics reevaluating it, now calling it one of the best cop thrillers of the decade and also best of the genre. Uh, other critics who had criticized the lack of stars and recognizable faces in the film, uh, that soon became not true because you had people like uh, Peterson, uh, Pancal, Defoe, Turturro, and even Stockwell would become bigger actors post this movie. So mm-hmm. so, so like now you watch, unless like, oh, John Turturro, Wow, he must have been like really big at this point. You're like, no, he'd been in like one movie. Um, Willem Dafoe same two movies. Mm-hmm. Like, and so it's that it's helped because they became so big. It's helped this movie's legacy uh even more. Mm-hmm. So Anna, work what worked about this movie? What worked about this film? What worked about this film? Um I think the supporting cast is incredible in this film mm-hmm. um so we're talking about john Turturro for sure is just like um i i think he's like probably my favorite character other than um willem dafoe in this film mm-hmm. um and then um i think just like the the cinematography mm-hmm. has so much going for it like we've talked so much about like even just these like one takes where it's a hallway for a minute or the mirror scene is just so beautiful um I, I know that film got a lot of praise for this score. I don't know if the score necessarily actually made the film um, what it is. I mean, I, I love the, I, I, I love the opening title. I love the opening title song. Yeah, that that's great. <laughs> I like that part. Yeah. Um, what else does I have good going for? I think it's just it's a complicated film. I like the ambiguity mm-hmm. of the you know the what we've been talking about these like good bad um, you know archetypes. Um, and I think it's a really amazing um, example of taking the noir genre mm-hmm. and creating and like elevating it um, and kind of like reexamining these like ideas of, um, you know, systems of, uh, I guess, uh, yeah, like justice, justice systems, yeah, 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 yeah. I guess. Yeah, I, th- I think it's really interesting. I think it's 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 not just a simple, straightforward, um, you know, good cop, bad cop movie. I think there's. It's one of those rare kind of films that has a seemingly kind of glossy, mm-hmm. um, simple kind of facade that kind of makes you actually think 
afterwards and keep asking questions like we're doing right now and talking about the morality of it all and you know the ending with Vukovic and how it's all just a cycle and I, I think it just it has a lot um has a lot going for it just in terms of um the conversation that keeps mm-hmm. going with it it's not a very simple film and like a lot of neon noirs you could kind of be you could kind of say oh well you know they're flashy and it's yeah. you know, just aesthetic and it's you know, just throw in like a, a, a pretty shot, uh, you know, neon drenched sex scene. And that's kind of that's it. Yeah. But uh, this this movie, it, it's it's deceptively deep. Yeah. Yeah. It's like take away the car chase, which is what the the, the, the big flashy <laughs> part of it. But it is it's like it's it's dealing with, like you said, morality and and looking at n- noir at this point, especially this neon noir genre. I don't know if they've really at this point in time done a lot of cop versions they've done like maybe the detective with like night moves or uh even blade runner but never really done cop and a lot of those old noir movies like cops were like the good guys for most most part and like it was everyone else was corrupt around them and this is taking like even the 70s with buddy cops like there is some sort of like even 48 hours where like uh, I don't know if Nick Nolte is say corrupt, but he's not mm-hmm. a great guy. But mm-hmm. this really just like tips him like no 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 these are this guy is like corrupt. This guy like like it's the scene when he when Bianca asks him like what if you what would you do if I uh, start stop giving you like information? He goes I'll revoke your parole like without thinking he without like pausing he's like I'd revoke your parole. Yeah, and, and that- leaves. <laughs> Yeah, we haven't even touched on on that side of the story where, yeah. you know, William Peterson, he's a bad cop because he's letting his thirst for vengeance blind mm-hmm. his morality. And he's, you know, doing these bad things that are against his uh, like justice code mm-hmm. as an officer or secret service agent. Yeah. yeah. Um, but then there's this whole other thing where he's just like not a good person in general like yeah. he clearly has a coercive sexual relationship with this woman who's his yeah. informant and even it's it's just that he clearly doesn't treat her very well um and that's like that's a whole other character trait for him where we know he's not good um on like a police level but he's also just a horrible human being and clearly <laughs> uh, incredibly misogynistic mm-hmm. and abusive in mm-hmm. this like power um dynamic this power dynamic that yeah. he has with um his informant i can't remember her name now Bia- um, bianca i believe is her name oh i thought bianca was uh that bianca i think bianca is um uh willem defoe's girlfriend she oh is, and then, i guess it's ruth then you're right ruth ruth i don't even remember their names ever being yeah, mentioned yeah yeah ruth ruth <laughs> yeah yeah I don't, yeah that's right i don't but yeah, it's Ruth. Sorry, I, Bianca. Weirdly, I think Ruth has a bigger part, but she is. But but Bianca's build higher than Ruth. Weirdly enough. Well, yeah, because Bianca's the femme fatale. Yes. You know. Um, and Ruth is just a victim in all of this, and the fact that he doesn't care about her safety. She multiple times expresses that she's doesn't feel safe and she's concerned about her safety, and he's yeah. so flippant. Ugh, I just. Yeah, uh, he's a piece of shit. Yeah, but but <laughs> but that's not, but here's the, like I said that's he's, he's a piece of shit, but that's not a bad thing for the movie. No, the, not at all. It, it's good for the movie. Be. Yeah, he's it's, he's supposed to be. Yeah, because then he's also it's so funny like him in this role because William Peterson he's like, and I I, I read the Washington Post 
mm-hmm. review that you um you sent and mm-hmm. it's so funny because the way they describe him is kind of like how i you know i was watching the movie last night with um my boyfriend and we were joking about how uh william peterson is like bad at running and he kind of looks a bit ridiculous when he's doing action mm-hmm. and um he's got like a bit of a baby face and this guy in the Washington Post, he says, uh, you know, Peterson, who looks like a squirrel set for winter, never yep. gets around his pillowy face. He's the acting <laughs> hero as mama's boy. And <laughs> I was like, it's so true because it's a good it's good casting because he, you know, William Peterson's like a handsome guy, but he also mm-hmm. doesn't he doesn't look like he's a bad guy. Yeah. Um. So it's really good casting on their part, because I think we're like originally just kind of we don't we don't expect him to kind of be this bad yeah yeah, yeah. Uh, and it's good that he is because we need that um you know i, I think he, we, he needs to go that deep he needs to yeah. be that bad of a person for to justify kind of the end of the film no i agree and i love that moment it's like when they're when they're doing the 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 brief on like the 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 thing the the deal gone wrong and they killed a FBI agent or whatever and like mm-hmm. and like Vukovic is like so upset but it cuts like to Peterson and he looks like he's been up for like twenty four hours like has mm-hmm. been on cocaine the entire time and it's mm-hmm. just like it's like it's like he just like he's like yeah so what whatever like so they're yeah dead. that <laughs> that was such a turning point when they're after in that in that briefing and they're yeah. like so there's an FBI this FBI agent undercover and he does not seem to care at all. Like William Peterson's just like, he looks so relaxed mm-hmm. and it's so disturbing in that. Cause yeah. you kind of like at that point think, okay, we haven't really seen him that much after the car chase. Like he's probably, maybe he's like really now that the adrenaline's worn off, maybe he's really broken up about it or something. Mm-hmm. It's like, no, he doesn't don't, care. Don't care. He's like, whatever. It's all in the pursuit of his goal. His goal mm-hmm. is the only thing that matters. He's a singular one track mind. Mm-hmm. Um, and he'll do no matter what. He even, I think he says that actually, <laughs> I don't know what part of the conversation we're meant to be at, but I want to talk about one line that I really liked in the That's movie. Good. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> which is, um, it's like what, like very early on, he says, "I'm gonna bag masters. And I don't give a shit how I do it." Mm-hmm. And then he's like, says that to Vukovic, and um, it's like there's barely a beat that passes from that line before Vukovic says, "I hear you." <laughs> like he just, is <laughs> he's like, "I'm gonna bag masters. I don't give a shit how I do it. I hear you." Yeah. And then it cuts right away. It's like yeah. so you barely have a moment to breathe. And it's just this like very, very intense line followed by the most mundane, mild read. It just, I hear you. It, it's, I hear you. I'm like, like <laughs> I deal with it really, this it every really, day. <laughs> it really sets up who, who Vukovic is. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Gonna, how he, how, what kind of energy he's going to bring to the movie going forward. Yep. <laughs> I hear you. I, I yeah. hear you. Yeah. Um, yeah. Did anything not work? <laughs> Which brings me to uh, what I think. I don't. I don't really like the actor who played Vukovic. I don't. Oh, interesting. Like okay. John Panko. I don't. I just. And I understand like uh, what they were doing with his character. They're like, let's put him in like sweaters and like let him be mild and all mm-hmm. this stuff. But um, I just. I don't know. I. I, he never really I think he like had a great moment at the end once he finally kind of comes into his own. Mm-hmm. But um I just didn't find anything compelling about his performance. I didn't find myself wanting to watch him or um I I like him when he's paired with William Peterson, but it even when he's with William Peterson, it's kind of like he's like a lost puppy, which is, you know, I guess 
works with the story. Yeah, yeah. Um, but he didn't. It's not like he like detract, detracted from the movie for me at all. Like he was fine in that role. I just kind of wonder if someone who had a little bit more like sparkle, star mm-hmm. power, because he just doesn't have it for me. I, I think that William Peterson has it. He's got you know a je ne sais quoi, but mm-hmm. um, I don't know. It's just, yeah. Uh, he he's a little plain, but and I but I do see like maybe on multiple rewatches that will feel natural. Um, yeah. Maybe it's better for him to be more mundane to kind of William Peterson's totally unhinged, uh, psychotic uh, yeah. guy. But um, I don't know. I just he didn't do much for me. I don't. But uh, you you seem to not feel the same way. So tell me how you feel. Well, well, no, I I think I. I I, I think what you're saying about it, I get that, but I also think that's for me. That's like that works that character. Like totally. he's supposed to be kind of like he's he's like I. It's like I became a cop to to do good things or whatever. I became to do good, that's what it feels like. He's supposed to be that mm-hmm. guy. So he's just kind of like I don't like I don't want to be a part of any of this stuff. And mm-hmm. I I guess you could say the sections where he's supposed to be guilt ridden. Mm-hmm. aren't as strong as they could be no he, he's not very good at um explosive kind of performance um even That's in like fair. the back we were chatting about like the backseat of the car when he's like freaking out and the car chase and this may just be an issue with adr because they clearly adr at everything but mm-hmm. in the way he's like moaning in the back seat yeah uh, i think he's supposed to be like getting car sick maybe or he's yeah. nervous i'm not quite sure what it is but that's fair what it I think like anything that kind of like goes past a kind of uh, like emotional simmer, like mm-hmm. is, is not his range. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe. Uh, yeah. But I, but again, like I, I didn't, I guess I don't mind him and I understand his usefulness in that role. And maybe if I saw someone who was more, um, had a little bit more going on, mm-hmm. um, maybe I would be like, oh no, this isn't right. Like we we need him to be the really straight man to yeah. William Peterson. Um, so it, I don't know. Maybe maybe he is the perfect choice, but um, I don't know. Yeah, it just it just didn't do it for me this this watch. I That's guess. fair. That's fair. Um, yeah, I think we both kind of agree. You don't really need the opening as much with the terrorist stuff. Yeah. Find it, other- it feels it feels a bit out of place, doesn't it? Yeah. When you think about the whole film, like I keep forgetting that that scene happened. Yeah. Like it, it weirdly, like it. It's. I mean, I guess it's it's a intro. It's a good intro, I guess, to the the relationship between the two characters. But it's not the best intro for who Richard Chance is. The bridge. Yeah. The bridge moment is. Mm-hmm. Um. So it's like I, you feel like it, I, I think there's ways around it. I think there's ways around getting to that that core. But I think it's they're, they're wanting something kind of like flashy and and edgy, or I guess an action set piece to start the movie, mm-hmm. and that's what they went with. But it's 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 you could deal without it. I feel like I think you can get a, or a better better idea. I mean, yeah. But like I said it, it's just there to be like these guys are Secret Service guys, yeah, and not cops. Hmm. I, I think you're right. I think it it solely exists to remind us that they're not actual yeah. cops, yeah. which doesn't matter anyway, because I still think they're cops. Exactly. Even in this conversation with you, and we've mentioned Secret Service a million times, I still forget they're Secret Service. It doesn't yeah. matter. Yeah. It do, it's literally the least significant, you know, fact in this. And I'm sure that there's uh, Secret Service investigates money laundering and not, you know, 
cops yeah. or something. I'm sure there's that that element, but uh, I, I I'm not aware of those nuances yeah. in uh, police work versus Secret Service, so it doesn't matter to me. I don't either. I'm not either. I so. see. I see. I see. Guy, um, man with gun and badge chasing bad guy. I say cop. <laughs> I don't know. It doesn't matter. Doesn't matter. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. My my simple lizard brain doesn't care. I'm like I don't care if you see a service. I don't need that scene. Who cares? Yeah. Um. Did anything else not work that you wanted to bring up? Did anything else not work? Um. <laughs> I don't want to continue this thread of t- talking about how much I love Willem Dafoe. <laughs> um. I don't want to. I don't want to be this person. I know. I don't want to be the. <laughs> The girl you bring on the podcast who just won't stop talking about Willem <laughs> Dafoe and how in love with him she is. But um That's a character trait. That's fine. He doesn't his sex scene is not long. <laughs> <laughs> and feel free to cut this out of the podcast. I may call you tomorrow morning, Brandon, and be like, Brandon, we gotta cut it, cut it, cut it. Um <laughs> It's so brief. It's yeah. so, so brief. It literally is I think it, it felt like it was 30 seconds. And even I was watching it. And I was like, oh, this is great. Like, the lighting is incredible. Like, she looks gorgeous. Yeah. He looks gorgeous. And then it was just over. Nothing happened. <laughs> and I was like, and I was expecting kind of like, um, you know, like in Manhunter, when he's um, like having sex with his wife kind of mm-hmm. early in the movie, and it's like drenched in that like blue light. Yeah. And it just goes on for an obnoxious amount of time. But it's kind of, that's the vibe. Because yeah. it's a neon noir, and you do that in neon noirs. And I just, I don't know. I... I do wish it had been a bit longer. I'm not going to lie. <laughs> um, That's part of yeah. the fan, fan fiction that you that do it, later. Yeah, that that fits in with um, what I was saying previously about my simple lizard brain. Um, you know. <laughs> it's okay. I, it's fine. I, I get it. I get it. You, want more, you want more sexy and wonderful. I totally understand. I, I think, yeah, I think I maybe just want more of it young, in general in this movie, maybe. Yeah, Although. Young Defoe. Blue, yeah, because they gave us full frontal William Peterson, and I didn't need it. Yeah. <laughs> that was full on. I didn't need that. I, I could have done without that. I yeah. wish they had taken the time allotted for that scene and given it to Willem Dafoe. Yeah. You know? <laughs> if they only knew. If Friedkin only knew at the time. They should have just had me consult yeah. on this movie. Before you were uh, born. <laughs> yeah, a decade before I was born. Before. They should yeah. have asked me to consult on the sex scene in their movie. We need more we need a more Defoe sex scene in here, guys. A little longer. <laughs> right? Yeah, Robbie, um, Robbie, get get a better shot here. I want, we want to see more of We haven't Defoe. even Oh yeah, we haven't even talked about I mean like you mentioned it briefly, but like I uh, I hadn't realized that Robbie Mueller had had shot this and yeah. he's just shot so many movies. Like my favorite one of my favorite movies of all time is Breaking the Waves and he shot that. Mm-hmm. Um and Dead Man, which is one of my favorite. It yeah. is my favorite Charmish. Um Yeah. So incredible! Like what a what an incredible talent to have on your yeah Barfly, Paris, Texas, like yeah Paris. Oh my god, yeah Paris, Texas, and like Mystery Train and Coffee and Cigarettes and yeah, just basically Jarmish, I guess. But um, so, so that worked. That stuff worked. We're saying oh yeah, yeah yeah all of, all of that worked. Yeah, all um, that worked. Yeah, my my brain just like jumps around. It's okay, um, <laughs> but he, yeah, it's totally fine. But yeah, uh, Mueller stuff's great. Yeah, what didn't work. We're, oh wait, no, we're talking about what work now, right? No, no, we're dating not work. We're still dating. <clears throat> right, we're, we moved right. on. We moved if, on. If, if you have nothing else, we can move on. It's totally fine. <laughs> no, no, no. I, I can move on uh, okay. to things that don't work. I. Oh, <laughs> we are on things that don't work, right? Yes. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I didn't know if you had more. No. Uh, oh, maybe. Um. Yeah. I mean, I, I'm not a huge fan of the score, but um. Oh wow. 
coming, um, coming in hot. I think it just feels a little too boppy. Feels a little too <laughs> a little poppy. Feel, a little too poppy. Yeah. Um, but uh, I do appreciate that it's still kind of like new age, new wave kind of. Yeah. Um, it you do need that kind. That's like a core tenet of I feel like neon noirs is uh, a good soundtrack that's like either synth or yeah. new wave. Yeah, it's like um. Like a, Tan- Tangerine Dream and like Thief. Ta- yeah, Tangerine Dream and Thief for yeah. sure is like the the one that kind of like everyone thinks of. That's like the core one. Yeah. Um, or like Giorgio Moroder with like American Gigolo or like yeah. What else? What other ones are there? Um. Uh. Oh, Manhunter. I mean, they didn't write the score, but there was like a lot of Shriekback songs in uh, Manhunter yeah. that had that vibe. Yeah. Um. So yeah, it didn't, it didn't, um, I won't fault it too much because it is, it is very in the vein of scores you would hear in these kinds of movies. It just maybe wasn't the exact vibe I would, I would have looked for, but it did, it didn't like detract necessarily for me. It just was kind of like, it's not like, it's not hitting for me. That's That's, all. That's fair. I, yeah. I I enjoy it, but also I was listening to it constantly as writing as I was writing the script. So oh, it's, yeah. it's in my head now is the thing. <laughs> um, but yeah. All right, let's let's move on to to film facts real quick. So uh, so Friedkin's been trying to develop this into a TV show since 2015, apparently. Hmm. So n- nothing's happened yet. Don't know if it ever will. Well, if we haven't heard anything, was the last time we heard about it 2015? 2021 was the last time we heard about it. Oh, okay. So, so not not that long ago that there yeah. was an update. So we're making progress. So we'll see. Um, despite the crew's best efforts, some of the counterfeit bills made for the film did get into <gasps> circulation. Um, the bill's quality were, was very, very good, apparently. Um, but some people caught it, and I think I think even Friedkin said he might have used some at one point. What? Yeah, so... Uh, oh, that's not good. That's illegal. Yeah, so stuff got, <laughs> so it got out by people from crew members or whatever, and, and it was used for a brief time. Um, wow. one legend says that, uh, Michael Mann tried to sue William Friedkin for plagiarism over the film, film, accusing him of stealing the concept of Miami vice, um, hmm. but lost the lawsuit. However, Friedkin has said that Michael Mann and him are good friends and nothing like that ever happened. Hmm. But that was a that, big legend for a bit. That does sound just like a legend, you know? Yeah. That doesn't, that seems like, I can't imagine those guys suing each other. Yeah. Like, they're in the same world. Yeah, I mean, you could, but I, I don't. I don't think my old man cares enough. Is the thing of it? Yeah. Like, it's like, oh yeah, you made French Connection, and I made Thief. So like, it's whatever. Like we're just let's move on. Yeah, and Thief came after French Connection. Yes, or just like, or, or even Heat. It's like he takes my Heat becomes a cop drown. It's like it's it's mm, fine. Yeah, yeah. It's like I got a lot of Heat vibes from this movie too. Like I said it feels like a Michael yeah. Mann type thing. Of totally. Like good guy or or cop versus uh criminal and how the line is kind of skewed mm-hmm. of who is who um yeah I think, definitely I think, I think man does it better in terms of the villain side with with de niro um anyway but uh gerald petovich plays a, ma- makes a cameo in the movie uh mm-hmm. as a as a secret service agent after peterson jumps off the bridge when peterson tells him to pay up for the bet or whatever so petovich is in that scene oh fun um william friedkin did film a scene, but did not include it in the final cut of Vukovic desperately trying to reconcile with his ex-wife after 
after I think nearing the point of either yeah, it's basically right before he goes and does the like before Pearson gets killed when Bugovich mm-hmm. is guilt ridden, he goes to try and like straight th- straighten things out with his wife, uh, and they delete it from the movie. Freakin says that he wishes he kept it in the movie. So mm. I guess to add more, give you, may, a little more, little more depth to Vukovic's character. That may have been nice, actually. Yeah. Yeah. He, just, he regrets not putting it in there. He doesn't know why he cut it. Hmm. Gary Cole, actor Gary Cole, is his acting debut is in this movie as a man be, being chased by Peterson. Gary Cole, who's in Office Space, and mm. I'll, I'll let you look at. I'm up. gonna have to. I'm gonna have to look at his face. Oh yeah, yeah, I know yeah. this guy. Gary yes. Cole. He, he yes. was. He was apparently friends with Peterson. I think he was also in the Chicago acting scene as well. Um, he's. Uh, He's in Ricky v. Bobby's father. That's yes, he's Ricky Bobby's father. Yes, I think I think that's probably his most iconic and best role. Maybe even he's been in a lot of great roles. He's also <laughs> was was great. Was I know. Great. I, I just saw that was his first his first credit on yeah. Known for in the IMDb. <laughs> yeah, I mean he's he's great. He's great uh, in Veep. He's great in um, Greg Brady and Brady Bunch. He's he's the he's the, it's okay. Um. Anyway, <laughs> but I love Gary Cole, and I I need to go back and see if I because I don't know if you can see him clearly, but I think he's being chased by by Peterson. Interesting. Um, future TV director Leslie Linka Gladder, uh, was the choreographer on this film, and she did she would direct Twin Peaks, West Wing, ER, Mad Men, Homeland episodes for all those shows. Wow. So I guess she's the choreographer for like the the art dance scenes. Um. <laughs> What else is there? Uh, oh, last last thing. Miles Davis was apparently approached by producers to compose the score, but turned it down due to a busy schedule. Oh, that's random. Um, maybe I'm ignorant of um, how old Miles Davis is. But I would have thought by this point he would have been dead. He was older. He I mean, he he died in ninety one. Okay. And, and this is like eighty four, eighty five. Right. Okay. So, so not I mean, too far. So off. He, he would have been in his late fifties, early sixties. Miles Davis would have been an interesting choice. Interesting but... kind of ja- it'd been a very different movie. Jazz infused. Yeah, but you you still need synth though. That's the thing. Yeah. You gotta. But then it would have been a different movie because it's like yeah. I know I've, I just complained about the score not being like it for me. But it, at least it it tells you what the vibe is right off the bat. Yes. Um, whereas jazz would have given a completely different, you know, tone. Correct. Um, could have been interesting. Actually, I would like to kind of see to live and die in L.A. with a jazz score. That <laughs> sounds kind of I kind of want to see that now. I, I mean, <laughs> he he does a phenomenal score for Elevator to the Gallows, the French noir film. Like I haven't um, seen that one. Okay, his score. You can just listen to the score on its own. Like it stands okay. up on its own. I don't know what it's like a different name on on Spotify or wherever you listen to music, but it's it's a phenomenal score. Okay, cool. Phenomenal I'm score. gonna I'm gonna look that up for sure. Um. All right, moving on to awards. So the Beatrice Strait Award, actor, actress in lead scenes that kills it. So anyone who's in like kind of 15 minutes or less or like three to four scenes. Mm-hmm. Who's your nominee for this? Oh, this is. This is our our we we give the awards. We give the awards. <laughs> I was like, oh, this is an interesting kind of award that um um exists. <laughs> um, who is uh who's who's it named after again? Beatrice Strait. She and was, what was her iconic she, role? She was in Network and won the Oscar for Network for like being in like and she's only in like nine minutes of screen time. 
Okay. Uh, oh, she wow. Was, she was also in uh, Poltergeist. She's um, one of the people who come to the house to like try to to exercise or to investigate the ghost. She's not the little uh. lady. She's the redheaded lady is what it is. Mm-hmm. But Beatrice Drake. Hmm, who's in the movie? And it's for less than I would say I, I think it's three to four scenes, less than fifteen minutes. Like, mm, so I, so we we couldn't give it to John Turturro because that's he's in too much. Of I it, think right? he's in a little too much. Yeah, I think he's still supporting. Um, <laughs> who would be good? Um, there's Dean Stockwell. Yeah, I. Or is it Jane Leaves, Le- Levy's, or whatever? No, she she does she does not do enough. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, she does a lot, but she yeah. doesn't do enough. Um, who I really enjoyed, whoever played Max Waxman. Um, oh, Christopher Allport. Yeah, I forgot. I'm trying to find yeah. his name. Uh, <laughs> yeah, whoever that is, I really enjoyed his uh, two scenes <laughs> in the yeah. film. Um, she came on to me, man. She came on to me. Yeah. (laughs) Oh God. And like the scene when, when master shows up is just, it's so, it's so good. That's a great scene. Um, Yeah. Yeah. And like right before he shoots him and he says like, uh, 18th century. And he was like Cameroon. Yeah. He's like holding a statue. He's like 18th century Cameroon. Your taste is in your ass. And then he shoots him. It's so good, but even I know he just he felt like a for a bit kind of part that yeah. would be played by kind of a character actor. I he felt very modern in his performance. Like I thought he was very natural. Um, yeah. I don't know. I, I I really when I when I think about the movie and think about small parts that I liked, Max Waxman certainly Let's comes go with up. It. Christopher Alport. He yeah tragically passed away in two thousand eight. Tragically. Uh. Was one he was he was killed in an avalanche at a ski <gasps> resort. Oh no, that is really sad. Yeah. Damn. So yeah, yeah, he was sixty years old. But, well, then uh, he deserves the award. Then we're going to him, Christopher Alport. Quantity. One hundred twenty-five grand. Hmm. I've seen better. I'll give you ten points for the package. Twenty points is oh, the price. Twenty points. Where am I going to get twenty points off the back of a turnip truck? Tell Ricky and kiss my ass. 20 points or I'm out of here. Hey. What do you hear from Cody? Problems. I know you and Rick had your doubts about me on this Cody thing. And I want to tell you, I hope that's over with. I am straight with Rick. I would never fuck with Rick. He never talks to me about his business. He told me to tell you if you like the paper, he wants your order. Now. No problem. That's cool. Annie Potts X Factor Award, supporting actor, actress that is the most memorable. Now here's a question. Do you is Defoe supporting or is he kind of a co lead here? No, he's a lead. He's not. Okay. He, I, yeah, I, yeah, he's I, he's he's out of the running for that. Okay, I think. then I, I would say Totoro here. Mm. Yeah. I, I would vote for either Chichiro or um, Bianca, the girl who played Bianca. Okay, Deborah Fuhrer. Yeah, I really, really love. She's very striking. She doesn't have as many big acting moments, but she's such a good presence. Um, but I, I think it, I, I really love John Chichiro in this as well. He really kind of 
put everything into this so uh, yeah like I, I still think about the lines like if you want to pigeon go to the park like i just it's a great <laughs> it's just a great line yeah and like yeah and everything he says he's got like the way his jaw kind of sits like in that like classic way where it's kind of like a little off to the side like everything feels so like um resilient in -hmm. his face like he's he's got that kind of face um yeah he's the perfect person for that role this like person stuck in prison who would never rat anybody out yeah um yeah you know i'll I'll go with yours i'll go with yours i think john turturro deserves it I take them four falls. I never ratted anybody in my life, and I've had plenty of chances, believe me. Hey, Masters is your friend. I don't blame you. I would never hand up a friend. Anybody would is a piece of shit. Thing is, is your friend tired of heavy iced? That doesn't mean I'm going to roll over and play informer. If you're looking for a pigeon, go to the park. Tell you what, you help me, I'll get to a judge, have your sentence reduced to a parole, get you the fuck out of here. What would I have to do? Like exactly? Simple. Show me where you print and testify against him in open court. I'd rather stay in here the rest of my life than testify in open court. All right, the Gene Hackman MVP award, person who carries the movie, director, actor, etc. Well... I think it has to be Willem Dafoe. Really? Yes. I think he carries. I just can't wait for whatever scenes he's in. I think he's the most interesting part. I have to. For me, I'd go with Friedkin. Friedkin? Yeah. Wait, don't we have to give them to? We don't have to give them to actors. No, director, actor could be. We we did compose. We did composer on the last one. Oh, you did? Yeah. Oh wait, I might have to reevaluate then. <laughs> I thought this was just actors. No. Um, who, who carries the movie? And this could it could be anybody. I say Friedkin because I do love Defoe, but I think if the big section of this is the car chase, and Defoe is not in the car chase, mm. I have to go with Friedkin for that. And it's not, and it couldn't be Robbie Mueller then because he didn't shoot the car. He chase. He didn't shoot the car chase. Right. Hmm. Yeah, we've come close. I don't know if we've ever given it to a cinematographer, but we've come close a few times, but we never give it to a cinematographer. When will you ever give it to an editor, Brandon? Have we done that? I don't think we've done that. I feel like we might have discussed it. I don't think we need to give it to the editor for this one. No. I'll let you know when it should go to an editor. Okay, okay. <laughs> um. Well, you know what? Considering um, that it's MVP, I think, I think, uh, I think you're your submission is is correct then okay william freakin i let's do it <laughs> but but for you you're saying for your personal take take you're going no to... not even because i this is when i thought we were talking about you know just okay. like the, the best actor in the movie um but the person who carries the movie i think too it's the story of like it's a comeback movie for him so it's it's important yeah. he, he's He's banking it all on these unknown actors and all these lead roles. Yeah, and it's like lower budget. And like we were talking about earlier, like he he took one of he decided to try again to make a more iconic car chase than his first iconic car chase. Like he had a lot of balls in this movie. Like he he really put everything into this. So I no, I I think if given the parameters of this award, I I think I would agree with you that. William Friedkin deserves it. In this case, I'll take 30000 up front and the rest on delivery. What? 
Everybody knows Rick Masters won't go near a job without front money. You should also know that I've never fucked a customer out of his front money. I've been coming to this gym three or four times a week for five years. I'm an easy man to find. My reputation speaks for itself. The fact is that if you can't come up with the front money, you're not for real. Final, final questions. If this film was remade today, who would you cast? And I know, and I know you guys always do this uh-huh. in in your episodes, and I'm just terrible <laughs> at, at casting people. Like okay. I will choose the worst people. So I couldn't even think of anyone I would cast okay. as Richard Chance. Like I just don't. know. Give me a second. Okay, I'll, I'll I have I have I'll, I had a lot for for Masters, but I okay. had like none for Chance. I, I have one for Chance. He might be a little too old, but when I watched him, I'm like. If he was a little bit younger, I still think he could pull it off. But his eyes are very similar to Chance. But I'll mm. save. I'll save him. Who do you, who do you have for Masters? Who do you, who are your people? Okay, I had a couple thoughts, and this okay. the most obvious one is Bill Skarsgård. Okay, to me, he's like got like that same kind of look. Um, and then I thought maybe it would be interesting role for Lucas Hedges. Oh, that would be interesting for Lucas Hedges. Yeah, I think he's got that like. Um, he that kind of like calm vibe with ha- like but he can like absolutely boil into like a rage and he can do that like go yeah. to those crazy places i think he might be an interesting one um i also i mean this one's boring but like remy malik could do it easily yeah um uh i, I, I thought it could be kind of oh go sorry go ahead no, 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 no go ahead go ahead, go ahead. And then my last thought was Lee Pace, and it might just be because I just saw him in Bodies, Bodies, Bodies. But he's so good at being, um, uh, like, he's so good at playing those evil roles, mm-hmm. um, but also being um, uh, just a beautiful man. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I I really like... Listen, I don't mean to go back to this, but yeah, like, That's I just okay. think he... I think he's um, he's got that like look. I think that would work really well for it. But also, he has yeah. that like really good darkness that he doesn't always get to bring out. And he's having a renaissance right now. It's like a Lee Pace true. renaissance these days. So I, I, I like Lee Pace. I, I my my kind of top choice. We can, it's it can go either way here. I would like Bill Skarsgård mm-hmm. for it because if you're looking at Defoe and like who is kind of your modern young Willem Defoe, exactly. He's kind of that guy. He could be that guy. Well, and this is the thing is like, I was like, okay, he's the, he's the definitely like, he's the equal, Mm -hmm. but like, are we elevating it from, and it's like, you kind of want to add a different parameter, which is hard. So it's, I don't know. This I could never be a casting director. This okay. is, it's too hard. But we'll, um. we'll go with Bill Skarsgård, but you saying him actually reminded me for, for, um, uh, for Vukovic, I would say Peter Sarsgård, not, no, I feel like Peter yes. Sarsgaard could play him. Yes. Could play uh, Vukovic. A hundred percent. I didn't even think of, of Peter Sarsgaard, but he would be perfect for this. Yeah. Yeah. I totally agree. He's kind of, he can be totally meek, but he yeah. can be that, that hard. He could get that turn at the guy. end. Yeah. He could yeah. be that turn at the end. Yeah. Totally. Uh, that's, that's a great casting. And so my, the person I had for, for chance, cause I was like, cause I kept watching Peter. I was like, man, who does he remind me of? Like his eyes are kind of these, big round eyes and i was like could this be christian bale uh, oh. could this be a christian bale may he may might be a little bit younger 
Because mm-hmm. he's like 48 now, and I think I think uh, Pearson was like early 30s. But mm-hmm. like, there's like I could, that that look of like him at the F when he finds the FBI character or the guy has died or been killed and they they did mm-hmm. it. And when we're talking about that scene of when he's looking like just does not care, but looks like he's been mm-hmm. awake for 24 hours. I'm like, I could see Bale in that exact same scene. Yeah. Playing like being it. very flippant about everything. Yeah. Like yeah. no big deal. He he does so much with his eyes. Bale does. Mm-hmm. And I think that would work so well for this character. Yeah. I could see that. Yeah. He might be, a li- you're right. He might be a little bit old, but tad, tad, I mean. Tad old. Maybe also Jake Gyllenhaal. Jake Gyllenhaal would be good. I like Jake but Gyllenhaal. That yeah. might also be a little bit old uh, for this role. I mean, he's younger. But I mean, he's younger than Bale, but yes, it's true. And we don't need to cast like age specific. No, and I you guess. can and you can make it different. You can make it to where like it's like maybe maybe Peterson, maybe Chance and his partner Hart are like close to the same age, and Chance is upset that his buddy's retiring. And right. not it's not the older mentor thing. It's more just like the best friends and one's going out, one's staying in. And he's mm-hmm. like, dude, you, dude, you can't live forever. Like, you're not young anymore or whatever. And you could like, no, nah, man, bail, but I can still do it. I'm still this guy. <laughs> um, how do you work? That's a good angle. Yeah, I, I, I like think it work. I think it yeah, work. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> All right. Does this film fit with any other genres besides the neon noir genre? It just fits so perfectly into neon noir. Um, I mean, I know Freakin did uh, like documentary early on. I know he kind of Mm -hmm. applies that. So there's like a there. I know there's like a bit of like a cinema verite kind of yeah vibe to to this as well. I don't know if that would. I don't know if it would fit super neatly into that genre. But um, I would also just based off setting say it's an LA movie. I would consider that kind of a genre. Is that a genre? I would consider it kind of a genre. Oh, I think no. it could. Think so highly of uh, of your city. Well, you it's could do. Genre. I mean, it's like you could do New York. <laughs> like, like New York movies have a different vibe than L.A. movies. Totally, like, totally. Like Texas movies have a very different vibe than L.A. So it's like it's a very specific thing of like this is an L.A. movie. Very, yeah, yes, t- definitely. Um, um, hmm. I would I would say even though they're not cops, I'd say a buddy cop movie. Because you have this whole partnership type stuff with with Vukovic and and Chance, yeah. Because they, they they got the good cop bad cop thing down. Um, yeah. yeah, definitely buddy cop. I would call it buddy cop. I usually associate buddy cop with comedy. Yeah, but um, a lot of people do. Yeah, but it's but it's, yeah, they're buddies or they're yeah they're, they're buddies they're and they're two cops. guys and they're and, just guys being guys. And a lot of buddy cop movies they have to have differing opinions on something. So a lot of times buddy cops it's, they do with race. It's like it's a white character and a black character. Yeah. But with this, you, you can just say lethal weapon. Yeah, but lethal weapon 40, <laughs> 48 hours like any of those. Um, but with this one, it's not it, that their their differences are about their view of everything. So mm-hmm. Peterson's corrupt or, or Chance's corrupt and. Bukovic the time at the time is not corrupt, and mm-hmm. so they have differing views of how things should be handled. Mm-hmm. So I would put it in that category. Definitely, yeah. Um, I that. And the last question: How does this film fit with the neon noir genre? Um. Well, kind of just has everything we talked about before. It's mm-hmm. got the elevated noir storyline. It's got the violent climax. It has the 
aesthetic um, mm-hmm. even though it doesn't all take place at night there are a couple of night scenes but yeah that have neon but you're right it is kind of mostly mostly but, day film yeah but, you, ha- uh, you have that neon when it goes into the the, the, the i guess the strip the, club in the strip club yeah i yeah, was yeah, literally yeah. just i was picturing that with like the red and the green mm-hmm. lighting oh so good um you have like the anti-hero at the center like the kind of like subversing archetypes of um you know the noir genre yeah. um you have the femme fatale um conspiracy kind of plots um it's got the synth score yep um and honestly it's you know there's all these tropes that go along with the neon noir genre but it's it's really ultimately it's like it's a vibe yep (laughs) (laughs) i don't mean to sound so simple with it but like even you know i i've looked at a couple of like other neon noir lists um like i have my list that i refer Mm -hmm. to but then there's other people made lists and Sometimes I'm just like, it's not the vibe. Like, that's not yeah. the vibe. You might have the elements in your list, but um, does it feel like a neon noir? I don't know. Yeah. Like, it, it's, it really is like a, a, a feeling. Um, I think like in my list, I kind of describe it as like, you know, hot and heavy, like Miami nights, like smooth jazz and synth yeah. and like all these things. And ultimately it all just kind of melds together into like a, a cohesive aesthetic that feels like a noir and neon yeah i don't know i mean yes yeah, it's, it's terrible it's, you can cut all of that no no no, no. <laughs> but so yeah it's, I mean, I said, michael you described michael man as the thing where michael man is like all those things and so it's like everything totally. kind of goes off man a lot he kind of solidifies the genre but freaking is an interesting counter i don't know if counterpoints the right word but an interesting comparison to mm-hmm. to man where again i said this could have been a michael man movie and you mm-hmm. could fool, you could fool people if you said it was but yeah, I think that's it on To Live and Die in L.A., Anna. Wow. How do you feel? Good. And it's your, wow. return, it's your return to the show, <laughs> a, a 140 episodes later. Wow, yeah. It's been a while. Um, yeah. Well, you just need to... Uh, do Neon Noir. Just, your, your yeah, long. Neon Noirs. Or just if you could just do another episode on just The Phantom Menace, that would be really great. <laughs> I don't get an I don't get many opportunities to talk about the Phantom Menace. Um. Yeah. yeah, I I don't know how how I want to deal with the Star Wars fandom nowadays, but I'll I'll, I'll think about that. I don't need. There's too much content. There's too much. There's a lot. There's I a haven't lot. even finished Andor. Um, I gotta watch Andor. I've been hearing great things. No, I was I was gonna say that like it's funny like I was chatting with my friend the other day about doing this podcast, mm-hmm. and I was talking about neon noirs, and she said, um is oh like drive Mm -hmm. and i think this is interesting how you and i kind of like have different thoughts about um uh i mean i consider drive a neon noir but i i don't consider it in the same way that i consider to live and die in la a neon noir because i think of drive to me neon noirs end at least i think the most recent film i have on my neon noir list is Mm -hmm. sneak eyes Okay. It ends in 1995. Okay. Yeah. So I think about like Drive and you know, like Mandy and like all these other films that kind of came out um, in the 2010s as like neo neon noirs, which is horrible. And, and no one should ever say that term. Um, but I don't know what else, I don't know what else to call it, because for me, it's like neon noir is so solidif- solidly 30 years, 30 or 40 years after yeah. noir films and close enough to the hay, like to the like the um you know the rules of of the uh, hollywood studios mm-hmm. that 
it it felt like enough of um like not that much time had passed that you could kind of compare the two and have this like crazy um new idea of what a noir was whereas now we're when we're in the 2010s it's like it's it's too far of a departure I feel like from the traditional noir it's like too much time has passed that like we're not really subversing the genre anymore it's like a different version mm-hmm. it's like a new level of it so to me it's like they're building off of what the 80s neon noirs were doing mm-hmm. interesting well so, I don't I don't know what to call it though because it's interesting because like I I just can't like in my in in my like my feeling is that I can't go past the eighties or mid nineties with neon noir, but I know that other people feel much differently. Much, I mean, and I know, I know you're doing drive next. So I think we, it's, we're doing it's drive really, next week. Yes. <laughs> so I think, I think it's really interesting. Um, not, and like you can totally cut this part if you don't want me to be talking about how drive isn't a neon noir. Cause it is, it is a neon noir. I'm just, I don't know what the, I don't know where we're to land because I feel so conflicted between these like, two worlds that feel so separate but have the same kind of terminology and the same tropes <laughs> yeah i think the thing is that what you're doing you're breaking it apart based off of era as in year yeah when other people look at it based off just style and style alone is yes. the thing and and be, and because noir has not really been in a post traditional noir era into neo-noir there hasn't been a lot of separation mm-hmm. of like we're not in a Millennial, we're not in a millennial noir genre or whatever. <laughs> it's like it's it's like neo noir is literally anything from like seventies or really anything from early sixties to now, and that's yeah. a that's a big gap. That's a very totally. big big thing, canvas, and so there hasn't really been a breaking point of like, bam, here is this, here's this new mm-hmm. genre of noir. So I guess yeah, that's, that's the hard break. part. Yeah, yeah, that's interesting. Yeah, yeah, you're right. Maybe it's just something I'm gonna have to uh, keep muddling around in, in yeah. my head. <laughs> I just yeah. haven't. I haven't had. I haven't let it go yet. I I got so excited about '80s neon noirs, and I haven't had a chance to welcome the 2010s the, neon noirs into my heart. Yeah. Well, I'll, I'll I'll be sure to tell Thomas about that next week and see what he thinks. See, <laughs> see what he has the answers. Yeah. You, you guys. You guys can have a more um, in depth depth discussion about what constitutes a neon noir in terms of era, because I I do think it's interesting. No, it's an interesting. It's an interesting point because uh, I think Drive is one that actually kind of pulls off the style of a neon noir mm. than most. Because I think I think a lot of people when they think neon noir, they go to that. They go to Drive. They do, yeah. And that's a yeah. teaser for next week for the people who are listening as we talk <laughs> about Drive next week. Uh, <laughs> Ali is streaming anywhere, so if you can find it, go find it. Uh, if not, you can just listen to us talk about it. So be ready for that. Um, but that's all we have for you in this episode. If you have any questions for us, feel free to contact us at cinationpodcast at gmail.com. Send us your questions, comments, kind words. And if you're a new listener or if you're a new listener or a fan of the show, and for some reason you haven't subscribed to us, be sure to do that as soon as possible. You can subscribe to our show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever your podcast. And if you haven't already, be sure to write us a review on your preferred podcast platform. Give us your thoughts. Tell us what you like about the show. Maybe what you don't like about the show, but still give us five stars. I don't know. Just be nice to us. Uh, these reviews kind of help us gain a little bit more uh, exposure. So the more reviews, the better. Uh, so please do that. And finally, don't forget to like and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, Letterboxd, and TikTok. Anna, thank you for coming back and joining me and being a part of Neon Noir. The whole series was to get you back on here. So. Aww. Thanks for having me, Brandon. This is so fun. It's been great. Uh, And thank you all for listening. We hope to listen to more episodes soon. Bye.